As world leaders meeting in Munich condemn Russian war crimes, we ask how Ukraine can get justice. I don't think I've ever seen such a calculated plan to effectively enslave and subjugate millions of people. For Saturday, February 18th, it's All Things Considered. Michelle Martin. Also this hour, as we track those massive layoffs in tech, we're also asking who isn't even counted. They're unprotected in these precarious roles. They're underpaid. They have very few benefits, if any at all. And how does 50 years of hip hop look to Chuck D like making lemonade out of lemon rinds? Our music and our culture is always born out of some kind of situation where it looks bleak and dark and we bring light to it. That's all coming up. But first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Vice President Kamala Harris today said that there is no doubt that Russian military actions in Ukraine are war crimes. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reports Harris made the announcement at the annual Munich Security Conference in Germany, and on the sidelines of that meeting, the U.S. Secretary of State met with China's top diplomat. Harris said the evidence against Russian forces includes reports of murders, torture, rape, and forced deportation of Ukrainians. The vice president said the U.S. will help hold the perpetrators to account. The security conference comes as the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine approaches. On the sidelines, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's top diplomat Wang Yi held a highly anticipated meeting. Tensions between the U.S. and China have been high after a suspected Chinese spy balloon entered U.S. airspace earlier this month. Beijing maintains that the balloon shot down by the U.S. was a civilian craft used for scientific research. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Turkey State News Agency says a couple and their 12-year-old child were rescued alive from the rubble 12 days after the earthquake. They killed more than 43,000 people in Turkey and Syria. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from the earthquake zone. This latest rescue from a destroyed apartment took place in the devastated city of Antakya 12 days after the earthquake. Turkish TV has been broadcasting these rare rescues live every day. On Friday, Turkey reported a 45-year-old man was pulled out alive from the debris. Teams from more than 60 countries are still working in the disaster zone. Turkish media also reported that the body of soccer player Christian Atsu from Ghana was found in the rubble of a 12-story luxury apartment complex in Antakya. He previously played for Premier League soccer clubs Chelsea and Newcastle and had scored the winning goal for a Turkish soccer team the night before the earthquake. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Gaziantep, Turkey. Former President Jimmy Carter will start receiving hospice care at home instead of a hospital. The Carter Center says after a series of short hospital stays, the 98-year-old decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family instead of receiving additional medical intervention. The center says he has the full support of his family who are asking for privacy. Two funerals are being held today for Michigan State University students. including one for Brian Frazier, one of the three students shot to death earlier this week by a gunman who opened fire on campus. A funeral for the third student will be held next week. Five others were injured. Frazier was a sophomore and a fraternity president. He was described at the service at St. Paul-on-the-Lake Catholic Church in a Detroit suburb as charismatic, smiling, and humorous. There's still no word on a motive. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. The air quality is back to normal in Braintree, but a fire at a facility that stores and treats waste there prompted city officials to call on nearby residents to close their windows Thursday night. The fire broke out at the Clean Harbor's waste disposal at around 11 p.m. Hazmat teams were also on scene to conduct air quality tests. Jean O'Brien Boback lives about two miles from the fire. I didn't have any clue that anything was going on until I got up the next morning and went on social media. Meanwhile, the town had recommended people shut their windows and stay inside. Bobak says the city should have used reverse 911 to notify residents because not everyone is on social media, but she was told by city officials it was too late in the evening to make such a call. In nearby North Weymouth, town councilor Pascal Berger tells the Boston Globe, due to the winds that night, Quincy and Weymouth neighborhoods took the brunt of the resulting smoke and odor, and air monitors in the basin showed there was a spike in toxins in the air from 10 p.m. until 1 a.m. that later dissipated. Veteran Boston TV reporter Bill Shields has passed away. According to WBZ-TV, Shields died this morning from cancer. He was 70 years old. Shields reported for WBZ-TV for more than 41 years before retiring in 2021. Former colleagues call him an incredible storyteller known for his weather reports. They say when the weather was at its worst, Shields was at his best. The Frog Ponds annual Skating with Friends event has been canceled tomorrow due to unseasonably warm weather. The event usually features free ice skating and hot chocolate. Friends of the Public Garden president Liz Visa says the group couldn't guarantee that the required two and a half inches of ice on the rink would stick around all day this year. It's really sad. This is um, school vacation week. We had a wonderful uh, group of people last year that flocked to the to the uh, frog pond to be able to enjoy free skating. We were very much looking forward to welcoming people again. So we are very disappointed that we cannot provide it this year. And tomorrow will be on the mild side. Temperatures near 50. This is WBU. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to start in Ukraine today, where it's been nearly a year since the Russian invasion. The onslaught has leveled huge swaths of Ukrainian cities and towns, killed thousands of people and displaced millions. Speaking earlier today at the Munich Security Conference, Vice President Kamala Harris said the United States has determined that Russia has committed crimes against humanity. To all those who have perpetrated these crimes and to their superiors who are complicit in these crimes, you will be held to account. Ukraine's Prosecutor General Andriy Kostin says his team has cataloged more than 65,000 alleged war crimes over the course of the war. We wanted to understand how Ukraine can begin to approach an investigation of this scale. So we reached out to Wayne Jordash. He is a lawyer and managing partner at Global Rights Compliance. He's been based in Ukraine for the last seven years in an effort to help the Ukrainian government investigate and prosecute possible war crimes. 
And I asked him if Ukraine is different than other places where such investigations have taken place. Without a doubt. I've worked on a number of conflicts from the Rwandan genocide to the breakup of the former Yugoslavia to the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and so on and so forth. And I don't think I've ever seen such a calculated plan to effectively enslave and subjugate millions of people. That's what would have happened if the Russian military operation had succeeded. I mean, built into this uh, military operation are war crimes and crimes against humanity and possibly genocide. So most conflicts, the crimes are, yes, a mixture of intentional and incidental, but this, there's no mistake. These crimes are a fundamental and inherent part of the military operation. Can you give us a sense of what you're seeing and what types of crimes are being investigated? So we're talking about everything from killing to detention to torture to sexual violence to damaging and destruction of cultural artifacts. I mean, you name it, this conflict contains it. The Russian military operation effectively takes three approaches. The first is to try to capture and kill all the leaders, the leaders being the military and the police. And then that definition expands as the resistance grows because it becomes much more about the cultural aspects. So teachers are targeted, journalists are targeted, human rights activists are targeted. Anyone who can help Ukraine organize itself on a cultural level, they're being killed. The second is then to run these very brutal filtration systems, which involves monitoring the population and filtrating them constantly to ensure that everybody is behaving accordingly so that there's no resistance in society. And then what follows after that is the real objective, which is to remove anything and everything which is Ukrainian. So the educational system is is changed. Children are conditioned to believe in the Russian motherland. Cultural artifacts are attacked and destroyed. It's crystal clear that the Ukrainians don't want this. The more they resist, the more the crimes flow. We, we also hear that, for example, there's a study from Yale that came out earlier this week. It said that Russia was taking Ukrainian children to be adopted by Russian families, mm-hmm. in essence, sort of erasing their Ukrainianness. Mm-hmm. And the study said that this is also a war crime. Have you seen this? Have you are you working on any such cases? And in your from your point of view, is this a war crime as well? I've read the report by Yale, and it's consistent with what I've seen in other places. If this was just a Russian military op- occupation plan, you don't need to deport Ukrainians into Russia. The purpose of that is plain. It's to essentially enslave people and to condition the children into a more pro-Russian stance. Hmm. So that, in a, in a sense, the deportation of children, the abduction of children, is, is it really reflects the essence of this criminal plan. So on the one hand, we see this staggering number of, of cases. On the, and, and, and then we also think of, I think, crimes being committed by specific people, mm-hmm. taking sp- specific actions, even if those actions have been determined far away mm-hmm. and i just it's just hard to understand how how you can account for both of those phenomena do you understand what i'm asking yeah. like how is I, this w- w- yeah. how can we think about this what you have is a criminal plan which is plainly emanating from the kremlin now what we see is in places like butcher places like mariupol is that there comes a point certainly amongst the foot soldiers 
at some point when the plan has failed so badly that the violence inherent in the plan expands, is exacerbated and explodes into a fury of violence. And that's why you see in Butcher, for example, just this flurry of what seems to be almost random violence. It's the consequences, I see it, of the plan failing. Mm -hmm. Mariupol completely dis destroyed, a city of hundreds of thousands of people just flattened. Why? Because it resisted, because it couldn't be taken. And so this nihilistic criminal plan turns into this flurry of violence. So you have both a plan emanating from the Kremlin, and then you have on the ground the consequences of the plan, which in some instances becomes suddenly it looks like it could be genocidal. What would justice look like in this case? One would think that, you know, prosecutions would take, could take years. The reality is we're not going to see many trials very quickly. I know that the Ukrainians want that, but the reality is that many of the foot soldiers who committed the crimes are back in Russia or dead. Uh, and the higher political and military leadership in Russia will not be leaving Russia very often, and certainly not to countries who uh, exercise their obligation to deal with international crimes properly. Now, what I would say justice looks like despite that, I mean, I'm an international criminal prosecutor, I would like to see trials, but my main motivation or an equal motivation is is to document these crimes as reliably as possible with integrity so that we create a bedrock of truth and a historical record which can be used to counter Russia's misinformation. I think what we need and Russia needs ultimately is a record which shows exactly what uh, Putin did and so on and so forth so that even when they deny it, as undoubtedly they will continue to do, the record speaks for itself. And I think we as an international community need to be better at creating such a record, using such a record, and having the patience to wait in the hope that we will get hold of some of these um, individuals and put them on trial. Hmm. That was Wayne Jordash. He is a lawyer specializing in international humanitarian and criminal law, and we reached him in Ukraine. Mr. Jordash, thank you so much for sharing this expertise with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. We reached out to the press representatives for the Russian military, asking for their response to the specific accusations of war crimes, including the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. They did not respond. The pandemic had a big impact on how we work and our relationship with work, thinking about the great resignation and then quiet quitting and all that we're hearing about worker burnout. Research shows that there's a relationship between happier, more productive workers and how connected people feel to their colleagues. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has some tips on how to boost social connections at work. Decades of research show that warm human connections are essential for people's health and well-being. Dr. Robert Waldinger is a psychiatrist at Harvard and directs one of the longest-running studies on what makes people thrive. The people who had the warmest connections with other people weren't just happier, they stayed healthier longer and they lived longer. The results of that study, which has followed people over a couple of generations, are the subject of Waldinger's new book, The Good Life. We get little hits of well-being, if you will, from all kinds of relationships, from 
friends, family, work colleagues, all of that seems to affirm our belonging, seems to affirm that we are seen and recognized by others. And the best way to build that sense of connection and belonging at work starts with small steps. For example, Waldinger says, think of a colleague you haven't seen in a while. You could send them a text or send them an email or even call them on the phone and just say, hi, I was thinking of you and wanted to connect. Those small actions, he says, often bring little doses of happiness. What we know with strengthening your relationships is that very tiny steps can lead to responses that will make you feel good. And if you want to make new friends at work, Waldinger suggests leaning into your curiosity about your colleagues. So you could, for example, decide just to notice something about somebody else at work who you'd like to get to know. Notice something they're displaying on their desk that might be personal. And ask them about it. Because one of the things we know is that when we are curious about someone in a friendly way, it's flattering and it engages people in conversation. These conversations, he says, can lead to deeper connections and friendships. But, he adds, leaders in workplaces have a big role to play, too, in fostering a culture of connection and belonging. You need leaders to say, being personal with each other is valuable, it matters, and it starts at the top. When that happens, the culture can shift in a company where people tend to know each other better and then care about each other. And that can go a long way in creating a happier, more engaged workplace. Read the strategy and PR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org. I'm Josie Guarino. The forecast is calling for a few passing clouds for tonight, lows in the upper 20s. Tomorrow, gray skies, maybe peaks of sunshine in the afternoon, a high of around 48 for tomorrow. Monday, cloudy, highs in the mid-50s. The time is 5.18, coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, taking a look at romance novels and if what we read says anything about what we want in our real life. That's at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former President Jimmy Carter will start receiving hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. The Carter Center says after a series of short hospital stays, the 98-year-old decided to spend his remaining time at home with his family instead of receiving additional medical intervention. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken met today with China's top diplomat on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference, the highest level meeting since the U.S. military shot down the suspected Chinese spy balloon off the coast of South Carolina. And the first funerals were held today for students who were killed in this week's mass shooting at Michigan State University. Three students died in Monday's attack. Five others were seriously injured. There's no word on a motive. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at joycefdn.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. You've probably seen the headlines about the massive layoffs in tech. More than 100,000 employees were let go in January of 2023 alone. That, according to the website TrueUp. That's on top of the more than 140,000 tech employees who lost their jobs last year. Now, getting laid off is traumatic for most people, but it might be particularly frightening for foreign workers whose right to stay in the U.S. is connected to their jobs, like people on H-1B visas. We'll say more about that in a minute. But first, we want to focus on people whose job status might not even be counted in the numbers we just cited. We're talking about contract workers. At Google, for example, the New York Times reported that pre-pandemic anyway, Google's army of temps and contractors actually outnumbered its full-time employees. So we wondered what is happening to those workers now that massive layoffs of full-time employees is taking place. We called Catherine Bracey for that because she's been advocating for contract workers in tech for years as the CEO of Tech. Equity Collaborative. That's a nonprofit concerned with eliminating inequity in the tech industry. And she's with us now. Ms. Bracey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's my understanding that when tech companies announce layoffs, they don't include the number of contract workers who have been let go. Is that accurate? That's correct, um, because these workers aren't technically or legally employed by the tech companies. So is there any way to know how many contract workers these companies are terminating or have terminated or even how many they're employing in the first place? Uh, No, there isn't, though we have a few clues. Twitter announced when they did their first round of layoffs that 4,400 of their 5,500 contract and temp workers had been let go. Their contracts had been ended in addition to the 3,500 full-time employees who were laid off in that first round of layoffs. But there is no data across the industry as a whole, in part um, because these workers are really off the radar. We actually just worked on the first bill in the country that passed in California last year that requires companies and staffing agencies to report to the state how many workers they have that are on these temporary contracts, which will give us the first picture ever of who these workers are. But that's only for California companies? That's right. Do you have any sense of, based on whatever data you have, like what the big picture is with tech companies and their contract workers and and what the trends have been in recent years? We did a survey last year, which we think is the most comprehensive survey of 
temp and contract workers in the tech industry. And based on what we heard, um, they are paid about 75% of what the full-time employees are paid for doing the same job. They're also on very precarious short-term contracts that get renewed at the whim of the employer, and they have really no voice on the job. Their workplace is very fragmented. Their legal employer is not the company that where they actually go to work every day. And this causes a lot of harms to the worker, not least when there's a layoff, they really just get the rug pulled out from under them with no protections. Many of the workers that we talked to that got laid off from Twitter were not even paid for their last few days of work, let alone did they get a, a severance package. So really, this is a precarious part of the workforce, and it, it tells a more nuanced story about who a tech worker is than I think the, the story we've been fed for the last 10 years or so. Well, to that end, I think a lot of people hearing this would be very surprised by this because I think this is shocking. Yeah. I mean, tech has really built a reputation as being a an envious employer, right? The great jobs with great perks and high salaries. But the truth is these companies employ a vast number of workers who are not directly employed legally by the companies, but who the companies depend on to do critical work. Some functions that are I think we would all agree critical to the work that tech companies do, like, for example, content moderation at Facebook that are fully outsourced. Um, and, and all of those workers are temps and contractors. There are, you know, recruiters and marketing professionals. And it is, in large part, a, a cost-saving measure, but not just because it's cheaper to hire workers through contract agencies. It's also because when a company reports back to its shareholders, they're able to get a you know better share price when they can say that they're doing more with a lower headcount. So if you're a contract worker laid off, are there any job protections at all? Or is it generally understood that if you're hired through one of these third-party vendors, there's no provision for you if you get laid off like that? That's right. Um, there is a law in California. Um, there's there's a federal law called the Warren Act, and then states sort of um, enact their own protections that may be stronger than that. And California requires large employers that are doing mass layoffs to provide 60 days warning, which often comes in the form of a 60 day severance package. But the workers that are hired through staffing agencies are exempted from that. So the question I have is, do you think these layoffs are real? Is the intention here to, to lay people off than to rehire them as contractors? A lot of these companies aren't in a business position where they actually have to lay, lay workers off. They're doing it to send a signal to the market, but they're not uh, trimming their operations like it, to the extent that they're shutting down certain parts of the business. So somebody's got to do that work. And I would be surprised if they weren't trying to figure out a way over the next year to hire some of this capacity back through staffing agencies. And before we let you go, I don't know if you feel comfortable, you know, offering this, but you're an advocate, you know, if, if a worker came to you, I said, look, you know, I have a skill set. And one of these temp agencies has come to me and I want to work. What do you tell them? Do you suggest that people take these jobs? I would tell them to go in eyes wide open. Uh, many of these workers go into these jobs with an expectation that is created for them by the hiring companies that this is a pathway to a lucrative and stable career in tech. And the truth is that many, many, uh, vast majority of those workers do not get converted to full-time roles. But we're not 
saying that all of these workers should be hired as full-time employees of the companies. We just think that there needs to be a much stricter set of protocols around how these workers are treated. That creates a floor that really does offer uh, temp jobs uh, to be a stepping stone to a better career. Right now, they're not. Catherine Bracey is the founder and the CEO of the Tech Equity Collaborative. Ms. Bracey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now we want to look at another group of workers affected by these massive layoffs in tech, people who hold H-1B visas. This is a visa for people who work in so-called specialty occupations, including fashion models, who have needed business skills and abilities that employers say they can't readily find in the U.S. workforce. But their employment is tied to the company that hired them, so if they're laid off, they need to find another job to sponsor them within 60 days, or they're supposed to return home or face deportation. Needless to say, that can be pretty stressful. Nuan Samarawira is a founder of Chicago H-1B Connect. That's an online collective of companies in Chicago who've agreed to help sponsor H-1B visa holders. And the rest of his life, he's the chief operating officer at P33 Chicago. That's an organization that pushes for inclusive tech growth in the city. It was co-founded by the former Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker. And he's with us now. Mr. Samarawira, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. First of all, do you have any numbers for us? Do we know how many H-1B visa holders there are currently working in the U.S.? And I'm I'm wondering if we have any sense of how many people who hold these visas might have been affected or are being affected by these tech layoffs. The total number, I'm not sure if that's actually public information, so I'm hard to get precise on that. But I will say that... um, on the layoff side, it, it's again difficult to get precise numbers because the layoffs are fragmented and the firms aren't obligated to release that data. But we think it's at least at least 10,000 people across the big tech firms that we've seen layoffs and have H-1B visas. So you have a personal experience working on an H-1B visa, if I, if I understand. I mean, you went to both college and grad school in the U.S., so I assume you were here on a student visa, but at one point you yourself have had an H-1B visa. Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like? You know, I would describe it as uh, fear-ridden, anxiety-inducing, constantly looking over your shoulder for eight to ten years while I was in that process before I got the green card. You've literally won a lottery ticket because there is an H-1B lottery, but it's very hard to make choices and just kind of enjoy the moment because you know it could be taken away at any time. So if you buy a house, if you if you buy a car, you know, suddenly you lose your job and you have 60 days to leave the country. That's, that's an incredible stressful moment. And so you are constantly feeling as though you're on the edge of a cliff, trying to do your best, trying to make sure you outperform everyone at work, but knowing that this could end at any moment. So how did the collective start? Was it in response to these layoffs? Yes. So the, the collective was in response to the layoffs. We saw a few happen. We knew a few more were coming. And business leaders in Chicago, particularly those with connections to the Indian community, began to say, hey, is there something we can do about this? Because we're starting to see a lot of concern in, amongst certain communities. So so part of the the goal here is just to make it more transparent so people won't be wasting their time. There's a structural problem in the economy. There's a lot of open roles that can't be filled in America because we don't have enough people with those skills. H-1B visa holders in many cases have those precise skills. And so this was an opportunity for many Chicago companies to also be able to access tech talent that had sometimes been a struggle in the past to recruit. So on the one hand, people look at this program and think, gosh, it puts people in this vulnerable position. On the other hand, there are Americans who say, 
why doesn't the U.S. workforce produce people with these skills? I mean, does this present kind of a safety valve for, you know, the American economy to allow it to avoid educating people in a manner that would allow them to fulfill these jobs? Does it make you think about, gee, does this program need some rethinking in some way? So I don't think it is a safety valve. I think it's a complementary valve. I think every business leader in the country would say, we still need high-skilled labor from overseas to support the roles that we need to fill. And for the long term, the American economy needs to be more thoughtful about how it produces talent and equips them with the skills that um, business leaders need. And right now, there seems to be a little bit of a mismatch between what's being supplied and what's in demand in the U.S. economy. But, but doesn't that mismatch in itself imply that there is a longstanding problem that hasn't been addressed, which is why isn't the American educational system producing people to fulfill these roles? That is even, even in a place like Chicago. I think you're exactly right. And I, so I, I do think it implies that. And I think that there are many minds across the country who are thinking about this. We work with a lot of equivalent organizations to ours across the country trying to share knowledge about how are we trying to reskill and retrain our young workers and also our workers who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s so that they're equipped with skills that position them for in-demand roles in America. One of the things that seems puzzling right now is that these massive layoffs are taking place just in, in this particular sector, and yet the unemployment rate remains quite low. Does that suggest that even though people are getting laid off in tech, they're finding other jobs relatively quickly? I think what we see is that big tech obviously went through a hiring spree during COVID and likely overhired. But there are many companies in America and certainly in Chicago who have have real problems that they need talent to help them work through, challenging business problems that allow them to produce value. And so there is plenty of opportunity out there. Right? A lot of the companies in Chicago, the reason they signed up for this was because they, they said, we've got tons of roles that we're hiring for and we need help to fill them. And so this is an opportunity for us. But looping back to the first part of our conversation, this is a situation where H-1B visa holders, even if they have the skills, might not benefit because these companies might not understand how to hire them, how to sponsor them, and, and things of that sort. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think there's two things they have a challenge with. One is they've only got 60 days to do this. And two, if a company isn't incredibly well-versed in how to do this, which I think is one of the big blocks, if you look at the percentage of companies who do sponsor H-1B visa holders, it's not that high, right? If you run into a company that doesn't know how to do this, I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to get through in 60 days because this is a foreign process to many HR functions in most companies in America. That was Nuan Samarawira. He's the chief operating officer at P33 Chicago. That's a that's an organization that's pushing for inclusive tech growth. And he's also a founder of Chicago H1B Connect, which is trying to help H1B visa holders to navigate this process. All right, Nuan Samarawira, thanks so much for talking to us and sharing this expertise with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. listening to NPR News. 
Russia, China, and South Africa have launched joint naval exercises off the coast of South Africa just days before the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. South Africa has officially taken a neutral stance on the war, but critics say hosting Russian warships at this point in the conflict means Pretoria has essentially sided with Moscow. Kate Bartlett has this report from Johannesburg. The military games will run for 10 days in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Durban. South Africa has said nearly 400 members of its armed forces will take part in the exercises with its Russian and Chinese counterparts. Russia has sent its battleship, the Admiral Gorchkov, which is armed with Zircon hypersonic missiles with a range of 1,000 kilometers. The U.S. and other Western nations have accused South Africa of picking sides in a broader geopolitical conflict. Is this the right time for South Africa to support the warfighting capabilities uh, of Russia during its invasion of its sovereign neighbor, Ukraine. The spokesperson for the U.S. Embassy in South Africa, David Feldman, told local radio station Power FM that the optics looked bad. By participating in this exercise, South Africa is supporting the development of those naval warfighting capabilities at a time when the Russian Navy is blockading the port of Odessa and preventing food from reaching African nations. But the South African government has warm relations with Russia dating back to the days when, as the USSR, it supported the anti-apartheid movement. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, paid a visit only last month. South Africa insists it won't be dictated to by the West. We are nobody's surrogate. We respect every other country's wishes. We would wish others to respect ours. So yes, we are looking forward to the games because we belong to the BRICS family. That was South Africa's defense minister, Tandy Modize, referring to the group of emerging economies that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The government says South Africa has participated in military exercises with many friendly nations in the past, including the US. These games are important for us. The exercises, the coordination part. So it is not just a selfish game of men playing with little boats on the water, no. It's important for us. This is the second time they have hosted such an event with China and Russia, but this time is a mistake, insists Corbus Marer, shadow defense minister for main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance. South Africa plays the role of the useful idiot in this clearly Russian propaganda exercise against the West. South Africa abstained from condemning Russia's invasion last year at the UN. Stephen Gruzd from the South African Institute of International Affairs says this is all about South Africa exercising its independence, but it may leave it looking compromised instead. It does make one wonder about what sort of neutrality can be asserted when you are doing military exercises with one of the belligerents in this war. It does seem like you have taken sides, uh, contrary to what uh, many government spokespersons will tell you. The foundation of the late Archbishop and anti-apartheid stalwart, Nobel laureate Desmond Tutu, has slammed the exercises, saying they could cost South Africa its integrity. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. The time is 5.39. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, taking a look at romance novels and if what we read says anything about what we want in our real life. That's at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. In sports at the Garden tonight, the Bruins are in the lead against the New York Islanders. It's 2-0, first period. The forecast is calling for some clouds tonight, upper 20s. Tomorrow, gray skies, maybe peaks of sunshine by the afternoon, around 48 degrees. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the trustees. With exciting places across Massachusetts, adventure is in our nature. You can begin your quest at thetrustees.org slash adventure. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Vice President Harris says the U.S. has determined that Russia has committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine. Speaking at the Munich Security Conference, Harris says the international community has both a moral and a strategic interest in pursuing those crimes. A Mississippi sheriff says a lone gunman killed six people, including his ex-wife and stepfather yesterday, at multiple locations in a small rural town near the Tennessee state line. So far, there is no word on a motive. And the Chinese video-sharing app TikTok says it's planning on two more European data centers as concerns grow about data privacy for its users in the West. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Teresita Gomez may be the most renowned pianist in Colombia. She was recently honored at the country's leading festival of classical music in Cartagena. That's where Beto Arcos talked with her about her remarkable life story. When pianist Teresita Gomez came out for an unexpected solo encore at the Getsemani Auditorium, she completely stole the show with a piece by her favorite European composer, Frédéric Chopin. One morning during a rehearsal, Gomez told me why she identified so deeply with Chopin. He was an expat who lived in France and always felt displaced. He was a person who suffered a very strong uprooting. He was a very lonely person. Even though he was surrounded by some of the great musicians of his time, that's not easy. 
It's never been easy for Gomez either. She was given up for adoption a few days after she was born. Yo nací en el 43. I was born in 1943. Her adoptive parents were a couple working as custodians. And it was not easy for the black daughter of custodians who were white. Her white adoptive parents were working and living at the Palacio de Bellas Artes, an exclusive fine art school in the city of Medellín. It wasn't easy for a person like me to enter that world, the world of white people. When Gomez was only three years old, one of the teachers allowed her to watch from a distance while she was teaching the little white girls. Gomez paid careful attention to where the students put their hands. At night, when her father walked around doing his rounds, she went along with him, playing on all the classroom pianos. I did all this in hiding. My mom was so worried they would catch us and throw us out. One day, she was caught. A piano teacher walked in while Teresita Gomez was playing this song. She opened the door and screamed so loud I can still hear it. The black girl is playing piano. I started crying. I thought they were going to beat me. I had no idea what was going on. But the piano teacher lifted the little girl up in her arms and told her, I'm going to teach you in secret every Tuesday. Eventually, the teacher got Gomez a scholarship to the school, and soon after, the star pupil was getting encores at recitals. Music critic Juan Carlos Garay works with the Cartagena Music Festival. She's probably the most important female piano player because of her story, because of her background, what she represents, apart from, of course, she's a great performer. Teresita Gomez debuted professionally at age 12 at Bogotá's Teatro Colón, the country's equivalent of Carnegie Hall. After graduating from the country's top conservatory, she became both a professor and a pianist. In the 1980s, Gomez did something revolutionary. She began to study and perform the music of Colombian classical composers. I thought it was important that we shouldn't be embarrassed to play Colombian music. I wanted to get rid of that shame. was amazingly brave because she started to play Colombian music even though people started to criticize her like thinking that oh man she she cannot play you know the big composer so she has to play Colombian music what happened with her that's pianist Ana Maria Orduz. She's a music professor at the Universidad de Antioquia in Medellín. Orduz says when Gomez started playing Colombian composers, their music was looked upon as having less value than European classical music. I think that thanks to her, 40 or 50 years after she started doing that, we Colombian musicians can play our repertoire with pride.
Teresita Gomez turns 80 this year. She has toured the world, recorded multiple albums, and last August, she performed during the inauguration of President Gustavo Petro. Especially significant was the presence of the first female Afro-Colombian vice president, who, like Gomez, comes from a working-class background. She understands the people she calls the nobodies, the people nobody sees. This year, Gomez is adding a book of memoirs to her list of accomplishments, making sure that people like her continue to be seen and heard. For NPR News, I'm Beto Arcos. And finally today, a documentary series looks back at the origins of hip-hop. The PBS series is titled Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World, and it's co-produced by one of the pioneers of hip-hop, public enemies, Chuck D. The four-part series tells the story of how musicians, breakdancers, and MCs were inspired by the conditions around them to create a musical art form. And joining us to talk about the PBS series Fight the Power is the man himself, Chuck D. Mr. Chuck D., welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Michelle. It's really a pleasure being on the other side, listening to you quite often, and uh, it sounds good that I'm on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So what made you decide that this is the story you wanted to tell now? Why why this and why now? Uh, I ask the question often, and especially to my magic partner on this, Laurie Bula. You know, I said, listen, going into the 50th year, in the last maybe 20 years, the narrative has been delivered by somewhere and somebody else. How do we become accountable to its beginnings? And how do we tell the story in its 50th year that's kind of true to the core? And, and also say, you know, if this was a rose that grew out of the concrete, where did the concrete come from in all its shattered debris? Hmm. Let me just play a little bit of from that first episode where you where you kind of start the story. I want to mention that along with being one of the co-producers, you're also the narrator. And here's a little bit about where you kind of lay out the case. To understand how this movement emerged from the poorest, most oppressed borough in New York City, you need to go back to the beginning. Spirit of Hip Hop was born in the 1960s. That was the decade I was born in. The air of resistance and turbulence helped create hip hop. Can you just say a bit more about how you feel the environment helped to kind of inform and create this art form? I think the environment always creates some kind of art form from a people who have been silenced. I don't think hip-hop and rap music is that much different than blues, uh, folk, jazz, especially when it comes down to Black and brown folk, especially Black folk. We weren't able to uh, air our differences against our oppressor. So it came out in the music. Hmm. But our music and our culture is always born out of some kind of situation where it looks bleak and dark hmm. and we bring light to it. Hmm. You, you know, there's a theory that hip hop came out of the disinvestment in New York schools where subjects like music weren't being taught mm -hmm. and that people kind of created music out of what they had, yes. you know, their records, their bodies, their voices. What do you think about that theory? Yes, ma'am. Uh, Michelle, it's, it's not only it's been um, a disinvestment of the schools, but it starts on a bigger picture, the disinvestment of your everyday life and community. 
and it comes out of that and people make something out of nothing. No different than somebody in the middle of the Delta in 1935 taking a cord and putting it on the side of a shack and making a note out of it. You know what I'm saying? Just a, a washboard. Mm-hmm. Well, hip hop was able to take maybe abandoned turntables and records left to the side take some electricity from a pole and make really uh, lemonade out of lemon rinds. So uh, that's the beauty of it, you know, and I, and I saw it, you know, uh, with my own two eyes, like it was a technical aspect of hip hop that really got me engaged in saying, this is something different than, than a band, you know, and a band, you know, we were always privy to music, black folk having somebody in the family that would play music. We were musically inclined if not taught from inside the house through church or or a system inside the community that would actually endear you towards music. We were always creative people, but this terminology came in a disenfranchised period where technology happened to gravitate to electricity, turntables and records and making music out of Mm -hmm. that. You know, the documentary takes its name from Public Enemy's 1989 hit, Fight the Power, which you first released as part of the soundtrack to Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. And I just want to play a clip where you you talk about that. Here it is. Spike says, yo, I'm coming up with a movie talk about this situation in New York, man. It's BS going down. Yo, man, I need the anthem. Fight the power! Fight the power! Fight the power! Do you remember when you came up with that track and do you remember when you realized that you said what you wanted to say was it like a eureka moment or was it one of those things that kind of happened i think like over time over time over time michelle i think it was a culmination uh i remember the song being developed in four or five different stages all the way up to Branford Marsalis, you know, playing his sax part on, on, on different dub versions when Hank was in the studio and Eric Vietnam Sadler. Uh, so it, it was developed in many stages when it finally came together. Um, it was significantly, you know, laid out for the third verse, which, uh, you know, which is the famed Elvis and John Wayne verse, which a lot of times people isolate the song inside its own shell. Mm-hmm. But I tell people, I said, number one, I was commissioned to do the song and that third verse answered specifically to Giancarlo Esposito's question to Sal. Hey, Sal, how come you got no black people on the wall? And then Danny Aiello comes up with, <laughs> with his answer, <laughs> which is pretty much answered by Fight the Power's third verse. We got to fight the power that The final two episodes of Fight the Power will air as a double feature on Tuesday, February 21st. And I want to mention that you explore a couple of themes in that. You explore the West Coast scene where the beat kind of moves to a different tempo. But you Mm -hmm. also explore the kind of the growth of violent imagery and it, that became a real problem for a lot of people in the genre. It became a, an issue. And you also explore how the hip-hop sound that started out in mostly Black neighborhoods grew to kind of wider and whiter audiences. So would you talk, talk about those two things? They're not the same thing, but talk about those two things, if you would. I'm a firm believer that artists can be whatever, and artists can say whatever. There's not accountability responsibility to the artist for their art. But I think the responsibility and what has dropped the ball is the curation, the management, 
the negligence and the caretaking of an art form when it's actually distributed to the world. That could have been better. I think that just put it in a place where it left it up to the beholder to try to have their interpretation of what it is. And that spun into a ditch. I'm not awestruck of hip hop and rap music at all. I was 13 years old when it came about. Uh, uh, if we want to say a start date of August 11th, 1973 at Sedgwick, 1520 mm -hmm. in the Bronx. Not that but you're counting, but I hear you. I seen it, <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I seen it as a kid on a tricycle. Mm -hmm. My job is to make sure it doesn't, you know, it doesn't drive fully into a ditch. But I like what you said. You said you're not in awe of it, so you can be critical of it. Would that be accurate? I don't like to say I could be critical of it, but I'm, I'm very critical of the caretakers of it because I think a lot of the times the caretakers have been the undertakers. Hmm. Well, you know, before we let you go, I want to mention that you've also released a new book titled Living Loud by Chuck D. It's an art portfolio filled with sketches that you have created over the years. I am sure the people closest to you always knew that you had been drawing your whole life. So what made you decide to finally let all of us see this work? I started out as an artist. I'm one of these guys who I'm not a musician who did art. No, I was always an artist that happened to stumble upon music. The art books and the art and the prints came about. There's, there's been about 20,000 illustrations from me since 2016. Before we let you go, who do you want to reach with this series? Who are, Is there someone in particular you're hoping will see it? Yeah, everybody that says that they love hip-hop. I mean, you ain't got to love hip-hop. I tell people, I said, when you say that you love something, you should know about it. I think the same thing if you say that you love somebody, you should at least know about them. So, I mean, you don't got to love hip-hop. But I used to ask a real clear question that got scattered answers back in the day because I would ask that question. I said, well, you love hip-hop? Yeah, I love hip-hop. You love Black people? And sometimes it'd be like, what does that got to do with it? Aha, gotcha. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, you should know about the people that this has evolved from as opposed to just by the, going by the byproduct. That was Chuck D., one of the producers of the PBS documentary series Fight the Power, How Hip-Hop Changed the World. He's also the narrator. The final episodes of the series air this Tuesday, February 21st. The full series is available to stream at pbs.org. Chuck D., thank you so much for talking with us. It's really been a delight to have to spend this time with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Always, I mean, you guys are the eighth wonder of the world. The year is 2020, the number, another summer get down.